everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Rapping with Reef Bum. I'm your host, Keith Perkelheimer, and today, back on the show, we have Mike Paletta. Hey, Mike, what's up, man? How you doing, Keith? Yeah, Good yeah. to see you again. Great to, uh... Is it snowing Well, we had yet? about 10 inches of snow on the, um, at the top of the mountains about uh, three days ago. I actually went skiing a couple of times, and uh, now, it's, now it's all gone. Now it's all yeah. gone because it's raining out. What a bummer. Hey, um, everybody, I just want to make sure that you could hear us uh, okay audio-wise. I, I seem to have a, uh, a lag going between Mike and I. And if there are any issues with the audio on the live stream, please uh, let us know in the chat. Mike, you could hear me okay, right? Yeah, yeah that's fine. odd because I could, I could see you and then I could hear you, but then your mouth is not moving. <laughs> okay. Yeah, there's some kind of lag. I have no idea. I'm not. I'm Mr. Yeah. Non-technology. Well, I'm keeping my fingers crossed. But um, anyway, for for those of you folks that don't know Mike, and I know there's probably not too many people out there in the reef keeping hobby that do not know Mike, but um, Mike is really an icon in the reef keeping hobby. I always like to say that he's written a ton of articles for many different publications. He's also published two different books: the New Marine Aquarium and Ultimate Marine Aquariums. Additionally, Mike has been a speaker at many reefkeeping conferences in the U.S. and around the world. So before we dig into another conversation with Mike, I want to thank the sponsors for this uh, live stream, both Bulk Reef Supply and Ecotech Marine. I really appreciate these companies supporting the show, and I also appreciate you folks out there tuning in, watching, and uh, interacting with us as we um, talk to these uh, fine folks. And I'm really looking forward to talking to, uh, to Mike again. As always, I encourage everybody to ask questions, post their comments in the chat. One last piece of housekeeping. We, um, oh good, I'm seeing that there's cool, not much of a delay. Good. One last piece of housekeeping. All episodes of Rapping with Reef Bum are now available as podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. So I see there's a lot of uh, folks uh, working their way into the live stream, Mike, and, and, um, you know, like I said, fire uh, fire away your questions. I know Mike's got a lot to to talk about since it's been, I believe we had you on, Mike, in in June. So there's been a lot going on, probably uh, with the tank. What's what's happening with the 500 gallon? Well, the 500 gallon, we're been fooling around with it probably far too much. I said I wasn't going to experiment, but things sort of happened badly in it, just out of mm -hmm. pure stupidity, in that. The tank was doing th fine up until July. Sanjay saw it in the beginning of July. Everything was growing. Everything was thriving. Everything was happy. Then all of a sudden, my chalices started getting eaten big time. So my assumption was, obviously, well, the fish are hungry because I had reduced the amount of feeding to try and get the nutrients down. So I upped the amount of feeding, didn't measure my measurements because it's summertime and I like to golf and go outside and do things so I don't do some of the things mm -hmm. I do when it's cold out. And my uh, phosphates got up to uh, 0.25, and my nitrates got up to 60. Not a crazy high, but high enough. At the same time, I brought in four maricultured colonies of acros, and again, being lazy, I didn't snip them off the rocks mm. like I usually do. So with the high nutrients and the high amount of, and, and the, the new, lot, new rock with a bunch of crazy stuff on it, all of a sudden, I started growing the weirdest algaes out of everywhere in the tank. Anywhere there was a dead spot, there was a different turf algae, a coral algae, something weird 
and they started. Yeah, and you think that hitchhiked uh, on the uh, the maricultural pieces on the bases? Yeah, that's what it, it was. You could see it literally growing out of there, and then it spread wow. to everything else. So with the high nutrients in that, I thought to myself, well, I'm going to bring the nutrients down fast. So I had used lanthanum Ooh, chloride scary before, stuff. and I never, never yeah. had any issues. I used two milliliters in a 600-gallon volume and ran it through two layers of polyester. Within an hour after I added it, all of my big fish Ooh. started suffocating. Heavy breathing and dying. And when I'm saying big fish, I had a maculoceps tang that weighed about two pounds. I had a full-grown pair of rabbit fish. I had a couple huge angel fish, uh, a couple huge banner fish. They all oh. died. All but one of them buried themselves in the rock, so I could not get them out or find them or see wow. them. In two days, my phosphates were at point or were at one point five, <laughs> and my nitrates were Ouch. over ninety. Oof. I was growing algae literally out of the tank. Oh. It was horrible. Plus, I lost all those fish, lost a ton of coral as a result. So over the last four months, I have gotten everything under control, except all of that then led to a massive case of yeah. STN, uh, slow tissue necrosis, where the coral, some of the corals that didn't die would gradually start rotting yeah. from the base up. So it broke my heart. I treated with witch hazel, which had always worked in the past. That didn't work. I treated with witch hazel and uh, chemiclean. That didn't work. I, since it has gotten cold, I have gone back to what I used to use in the 90s whenever RTN came in on Fijian corals that were stressed. I brought the tank's temperature down to 74 degrees, and I add 25 drops of Lugol's iodine a day to the tank. That has finally stabilized it. I haven't had a case of, R of STN in the past wow. two weeks since I've been able to do that. But it took going back to the old thing. So while that was going on, I was asking a, a number of my friends, have you had more instances of problems in the past year or two with STN, RTN, dinos, something? And virtually everyone has had something. So two weeks ago, Tulio came over from yeah. Reef Bright and brought his photospectrometer. And we started looking at the lights and everything else on my tank. And one of the interesting things he showed, and I know this is going to start a big hornet's nest of uh, questions and debate, because I, I don't know the answer, but I'm, I'm curious about it. And at the same time, I have been posting pictures of tanks from 20 years ago that were run yeah. under metal halides. So getting back to Tulio, when he ran the photospectrometer, under all the different LEDs I have, none of them produce any UV huh. light. They say there's UV light, but there's virtually no UV light on the photospectrometer. So one of the things we learned from COVID is that viruses and other organisms don't like ultraviolet light. So I'm wondering if this could possibly be some of the problems that we're now having is we don't have any UV light hitting our tanks to kill off some of these pathogens. And since they're basically in a closed Petri dish like this, could this be why they're becoming more You're not running UV, I'm assuming. So in that regard... You're not running UV, right? Me. Right. No. I, it's not going to kill what's right. on the rocks and in the tank. But what Tulio and I came up with is, okay, don't take off the LEDs, but you might add 
your old metal halide. So he's getting me some of his cool run. Because the main reason I switched from metal halides right. was the heat. I mean, I was running a two-horsepower chiller, and I was having crazy electric bills because of having to cool the room because of the halides. Tulio has 250 and 400-watt lights, and if you run them for two to four hours, they're still cool to the touch. You can touch the uh, box that they're in. You can touch the uh, uh, ballast. You can touch everything. It doesn't produce uh, the heat that our old Yeah, I'm actually running do. two of those units over a, um, a frag tank. And um, okay. yeah, and I and and my other frag tank right next to that, I have. I'm also running halides. Another frag tank, and I've got Luminarch reflectors, like the old school Luminarch reflectors. Ah, the old Luminarchs. And I still have you them in my garage. You cannot touch those things without burning yourselves. But if I put my hands on the uh, yeah. on the Reef Bride halide um, hybrid fixtures, then they're you're fine. You know, you can leave your hands on there. Yeah, exactly. So I'm putting three of those over my tank. I have my PAR meter all set up. Uh, I'm going to basically balance so the PAR doesn't change. So I'm not going to suddenly bump it up to, uh, you know, a thousand PAR like Sanjay runs. I'm going to keep it at the four to 600 range, but run these simply to see, A, what the long-term effects were, if it's easier, two, what the effects are on growth, if I'm getting more rapid growth. Because as Sanjay said, a photon is a photon, which I agree with, but how this is distributed, because you could stick a piece of paper underneath a halide, it's not going to burn yeah. holes through it. You put that under an LED, a black piece of paper, it's going to burn holes like a laser beam. So I'm wondering if even though the uh, G5 LEDs have a diffuser plate that's much more, produces a much more diffuse pattern than the old lights, it still produces a fair amount of uh, light in a specific area. So by adding the LEDs, I'm going to be curious that one, if it cuts down on the amount of STN, RTN, dinoflagellates, or any of the other problems I have because the UV kills that. Two, what it does with growth, and I'm going to measure growth in terms of how much faster alkalinity and calcium are taken up, if they're taken up any faster at all. And two, general, what's the general disposition of the tank, which is rather subjective, but I'll have a pretty good idea. Am I seeing more encrusting? Am I seeing more tabling? What am I seeing with these corals? So, Mike, do you how, how long have you been running the uh, the G5s? I've been running them now for about eight months. I ran okay, G4s so before G4s that. And, now the, and did you start seeing issues when you started running the G5s? It was probably three or four months after that I started seeing the RTN, but I'm attributing it to the wild fluctuations in the tank when I had the uh, phosphate and nitrate issues. More than uh, it's and, due to and the light. And uh, the halides are going to be added in addition to the LEDs, or you're just going strictly, um, you know, with the uh, the halide hybrid uh, combination. No, I'm I'm building a framework across the top. I'm going to move the LEDs three or four inches back in front, and then have the halides in the middle to basically provide the most amount of light to the absolute center of the tank. I mean, I'll still get some residual on the ends. But I want the main tank to be lit with uh, halides for a, a, a short period every day. Because whenever I started using LEDs with the, the uh, G2s uh, nine years ago, initially the thought was you can't grow acros under LEDs. So for the first year, I was running a combination of halides and LEDs. And the, the combination was beautiful on the tank. I got the pop of color from the LEDs and I got, still got the growth from the halides. But again, I was running the Luminarch like you were, and the amount of heat they were putting out, I, I ran it for about nine months. I ran it from September till May, and then when June came, it was just 
impossible to cool that room. Yeah, you know, I um, so I I've uh, added a couple of um, I added one frag tank this past summer, or I had been running one frag tank, and then when I added that second frag tank with the halides, I had to um, deal with some heat issues because my all my tanks are in a, in a finished basement, and here in Vermont, it definitely stays um, pretty cool even in the summertime. But I had to get a um, I had to get an AC window unit in my basement just to kind of um, um, uh, account for that extra heat for the uh, two extra um, halide light bulbs. And then uh, what I also do is I run the frag tank lights now a few hours earlier than my display tank to try to like um, you know moderate that temperature in terms of the time of the day. But yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I've been fortunate. I haven't had to run anything but a fan across the LEDs. And the AC duct blows on the tank in the summertime and heats it in the wintertime. So it's it's fine. And all I got to do is open up the window and I can cool the tank down to whatever temperature I want this time of so year. So, Mike, I can't recall. Have you ever run a UV sterilizer in your tanks? I'm running a 150-watt UV sterilizer on it now because I did have dynos and they were the free swimming one that UV kills off. I've been fortunate in that regard. So yeah, I've been running 150 watt now for about 18 months. Yeah, I I had never run uh, UV in my tanks up until uh, about six months ago, and now I've been running UV 24/7. And um, yeah, I I I, I had a, a dyno outbreak in my uh, my new Peninsula tank, so that um in the, they they were also the free floating variety, so that knocked them out in a matter of days, which was awesome because I had one bout with dynos um, a few years ago in my 187 gallon tank was that was not fun, and I. Threw everything but the kitchen yeah. sink at them, and uh, ended up having to reboot that tank. But it turned out pretty well. Um, well, what else is interesting about running that big UV? When I replaced the fish, I didn't want to put in anything that wasn't going to basically eat algae or do something to cl clean the tank. So one of the things I did put in was three purple red sea purple tanks. I quarantined them. They came in clean. They came in low salinity. I gradually increased the salinity. Cleaned them, treated them, put them in the tank. Within two days, all three had massive amount of ick. Uh, fed as I do garlic-enriched food and have the UV sterilizer on. And knock on wood, two weeks later, they're wow. clean. So I'm uh, very happy with the UV sterilizer. But like I said, I'm running a large unit. I mean, 150-watt, you know, basically an industrial-sized uh, UV sterilizer. Yeah, you know, I... I um... I had uh, Dr. Uh, Tim Hovinus on the uh, the show last week, I think it was, and, and we talked a lot about um, you know running UV, and he and he's not a proponent of running you know UV twenty four seven on a uh, reef tank because he does uh, believe that there are some bacteria that the UV will um, you know take out that can be beneficial to corals, but um, you know listen, I know there's a lot of folks out there that have had great success keeping uh, SPS dominant reef tanks running UV twenty four seven. But, um, you know, my, I understood where he was coming from. It's, it's um, I guess it's kind of a tough call in terms of knowing what, um, you know, kind of collateral damage you do have with the UV sterilizer. Yeah, because one of the hypotheses or one of the uh, uses or, or, or one of the treatments decisions when you're treating for RTN is you try to kill off all the bad bacteria, which is Vibrio, and I try to add in uh, good bacteria. So I've been using some of Dr. Tim's uh, and BioDigest and Microbacter 7 and Tunzies to try and repopulate the bacterial population. Because after reading the microbiome article in Coral Magazine, and after talking with a bunch of other people, we're all convinced that one of the things we understand the least of is the bacterial bioload 
and particularly how the microbiome around the corals interacts, particularly with regard to CO2 and other things, and how we have to try to keep it populated. I mean, what's funny is when uh, the uh, corals used to come in stressed out of Fiji, you could literally smell when they were dying. Mm. I mean, you could smell them in the bag, and you know, everyone that's done this a long time knows the smell of dying corals from a uh, Vibrio, an RTN infection. And in the 90s, I was working uh, with the microbiology lab at Pitt, so one of the things I was fortunate enough to do, I brought cultures off the corals and had them run them what they were. And they all said, this is Vibrio vulnificus. This is a really nasty pathogenic bacteria. And I've always worked under the premise that RTN and STN are a bacterial infection. Now, there's been a lot of other hypotheses over the years, but I've not had anyone prove to me that Vibrio isn't the, the dominant cause of it or at least involved in it somewhere in the pathway. So when I've had to treat it, I've always gone after Vibrio as the, as the most aggressive thing I go after. That and keeping the tank as stable as I can and potentially lowering the temperature of it as and well. And that's where you're using uh, witch hazel, and that typically knocks, knocks it back, right? Yeah, it, it, I've used it to dip corals, and I've also used it to, uh, 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 to treat the whole tank. And it's, it's uh, 10 milliliters per 100 gallon. I've gone higher than that. I'm not going to tout doing that to anyone out there because I don't want you to wipe out your tank. But uh, when you get stressed by how bad your tank's doing with RTN and STN, you, you take some chances. So I took some chances and found that even at slightly higher levels, it's not necessarily toxic. Uh, but you can't run your sterilizer. You can't run your skimmers. You can't run carbon. You basically have to hope the tank yeah. does well while you're doing that. Also, you can't tend to overfeed because a lot of the good bacteria are also getting killed by the uh, witch hazel. So you have to, it's a, a fine line when you're treating a whole for, tank. For those this. out there that don't know, what exactly is witch hazel? It's a, it's a, basically a topical antiseptic. So anything it touches, it will clear. Same thing with uh, Lugol's iodine. I mean, when I was a kid, we got methylate put on us when we cut ourselves and it burned like crazy. Well, this does the same kind of thing. Uh, people have tried peroxide. Uh, I know people that have had STN done peroxide dips on their corals. Uh, brown jelly disease they've done with, uh, and I've actually done it too. Uh, they've also done Melafix, which yep. is Melaleuca, which is also a antiseptic. So there, there's a lot of different ways to go about treating it. Uh, I wish I had a perfect cure that works 100% of the time. Uh, there is nothing that works 100% <laughs> of the time in this hobby. Otherwise, we would all be doing exactly yeah, no, that. Yeah, that's tough. So, um, we got one question for you, Mike, about UV, but uh, somebody made a comment here about hitting the like button. I agree. We've got uh, about 80 people watching us right now, and we've only got 17 likes. So if, if uh, everybody's digging what they're watching right here, please hit that like button, and, and more people will find us. Um, question for you in the UV, how many hours a day do you run your UV, Mike? Is that 24-7? Right now it's 24-7, particularly since I put the purple tangs in and a couple other uh, tangs that are – all ick magnets. Uh, I, I, I read online all the time, are tangs ick magnets? Yes, tangs are ick magnets. Uh, I've probably killed 30 blue tangs over the years, and I bet 29 of them died from ick. Uh, despite treating, despite feeding them, despite everything I could possibly do, because uh, ick, like uh, dinoflagellates and RTN, once it's in your tank, it's pretty much yeah. there forever. You just got to keep from getting stressing the tank and causing it to become dominant. 
in my opinion. I may be wrong, but that's right, what I've experienced. Right. It just seems to pop up when things become unstable and what have you. And it's, uh, yeah. Um, so Mike, what, how, how many, um, what, what percentage of your, um, you know, acros did you lose at this latest event here? I probably lost wow. 50%. That's, that's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. But, you know, but there's room and I, I have frags and I have friends that have sent me frags. I just got a, a care package from Julian yesterday, so it'll be populated again, but I basically wanted to wait. What's interesting is the RTN was, or the STN was primarily dominant in the big display tank. It didn't bother the frag tank to the same degree. And it, I had no problem in the LPS tank with the Ganiaporas and the affiliates. It was just in that tank. It was very specific, which again, makes me believe it's bacterial. And it basically is, is something that sort of dominates on the rock rather than just free swimming everywhere. Because whenever we used to talk about it in the nineties, we used to talk, if you have a coral with RTN, don't let it touch another coral because it will spread it. It's the same way there. So I, I'm very convinced that it's a pathogenic bacteria that doesn't really free swim in the sense that other pathogens. No, I know uh, on, on one of the one of the uh, past live streams you were on, you you mentioned that you had um, gotten some report from Aquabiomics. Have you been getting? Um, have you been sending out um, samples to those guys to try to get a read in terms of what's going on with the tank? Yeah, I've, I've sent out a few to them, and I've gradually gotten the Vibrio count down to a reasonable level. It's still slightly elevated, which is not where I want it to be, but it, it's come down from where it was, which was pretty much close to off the scale in their in their assessment. Yeah, I um, I actually, I think it's a I think it's a very good system for for seeing if you're having problems. I mean, between that and an ICP test, I mean, I, I ran the ICP test and everything was fine, so I knew that wasn't it. But like I said, I test frequently and I saw what the nitrates and phosphate levels were and I saw the algae growing. I, I mean, they talk about using biofuels and they want to grow corn. Uh, they could grow <laughs> algae and basically grow enough ethanol to fuel all our cars. I mean, it's amazing how fast that grows. Yeah, no, I bet. Um, I'm just looking over some of the uh, folks. Feel free to uh, throw out some questions for, for Mike and, and any comments you have in terms of, um, you know, his tank and what he's what he's been going through there. Um, so, oh, I yeah. Have one, other, one other thing that happened over the summer, we, uh, I basically changed the flooring and the floors in the sunroom. So I had to take down the sunroom tank, oh, you're which right. had been up for eight years, was a soft coral tank and basically consisted of one giant singularia that took up two thirds of the tank and a few other soft corals and a few other anemones. Well, in order to get the singularia out, I literally had to cut it off the back walls, cut it off the floor and cut it away from the rock to be able to lift the rock out. The singularia did not like that. And over the course of the next uh, six weeks, it gradually just dissolved uh. in the tank. And all the other soft corals looked really bad. I was doing every other day, every third day water changes for two months to try and get the tank stabilized. Finally, the tank is stabilized and everything is, is growing like it did before. And it's actually growing better because I realized that one dominant singularia that, uh, from my estimate, weighed over 20 pounds <laughs> was producing enough uh, sarcophytines or terpenoids or other complex molecules that are a little apathic to the other corals in the tank that it was inhibiting them from growing. So now that it's gone, all the other corals are like, woo, we can party because <laughs> it's not here anymore. And uh, the leathers and the, the anemones and everything else have really started to take off. 
The other interesting thing, though, I, I found that I had space, and I wanted to put mushrooms mm. in the tank. First, mushrooms are insanely expensive compared to what I was accustomed to. I hadn't bought mushrooms in a long time. Where I used to buy a rock of mushrooms yeah, for twenty nine bucks retail, now one mushroom sells for thirty dollars, <laughs> and it's the same blue mushroom or red mushroom. Well, my blue face angel in there is a connoisseur mm. of mushrooms, and he literally picks them off the rocks like peanuts. <laughs> so anyone that is having issues with mushrooms in their tank killing their SPS, you might consider a blue face because I have never seen a fish eat mushrooms <clears throat> as fast and as well as this fish does. So there's no mushrooms in that tank. It doesn't eat uh, yumas, it doesn't eat uh, recordias, but it does eat the, the typical uh, actinodiscus So uh, Variant's got a question for you, and I know, I know this will bring up a big, uh, this will make you shudder, but uh, is, is Mike's tank using, are you using live rock in your tank? I know you started with uh, with dry rock, and the tank behind you, which the lights are off right now, used to be a uh, reef tank, right? What's the... Uh... Yeah, no, in, in the tank downstairs, it's all live rock. It's actually uh 25 year old live rock from my 1200 gallon tank when my ex-wife killed off my 1200 <laughs> i brought a fair amount of the live rock here and populated my 300 gallon tank with it and when i moved the 300 to the 500 i used the same live rock i just made more space in the tank so it, it's live rock from basically the beginning of time in the hobby Rather than fresh live rock, because you can't get good fresh live rock for the yeah, most part I now. Think, uh, also, I, I was just going to Also, amazingly, this live rock, at least probably 100 pounds of it, were brought up from a guy who used to drive a bus down to the Florida <laughs> Keys and pick up live rock and drive it up here and keep it the water moving and aerated the whole time. And then you would buy the live rock for him. And he would charge the crazy unheard price then of a dollar fifty a pound for it. <laughs> wow, that's like that's like five dollar mushrooms. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I'm really old school. I'm telling how old I am, but how you know? I remember when milk was a nickel. No, I wasn't there for that. But I remember when you know mushroom and everything were thirty bucks a rock, not thirty bucks a mushroom. Well, I I, I probably told you this, but uh, for my peninsula tank, which has been up and running now for a year, I um you know I vowed not to start it with the uh, with dry rock, and I know there's a you know, we've had a lot of conversations in the show about live rock versus dry rock, but, um, you know, I got the, uh, so I, I started the tank with a hundred pounds of live rock from KP aquatics. And that's the, um, I guess the aquaculture in, in the Florida keys. Great stuff. You know, I, I right. paid a little extra for shipping. I think I paid, I think I paid about a thousand dollars for the, um, hundred pounds of live rock and, and, and well, pounds. you know, $200 <laughs> was for overnight shipping, which basically they shipped it yeah. in the water. So when it arrived, yeah. everything was, you know, there was a lot of stuff. There was a bunch of serpent stars in there and a bunch of pistol shrimp. And I think there might still be a pistol shrimp or two in the, uh, in the tank. You know, I try to do a high uh, salinity dip with the, uh, with the live rock to kind of flush out some critters. And I did flush out a mantis shrimp. Um, but then um, a mantis shrimp did survive, but luckily I saw it. I spotted it on a rock on top of the uh, the reef, so I just pulled the rock out and I got I got the mantis shrimp out. So yeah, you know there is certainly that risk that you're going to be bringing a lot of hitchhikers. But like you said, it's pretty pretty tough to find. I'm not even sure if there are any um, if, if KP Aquatics has any of that live rock in stock now or not. I might be wrong on that, but um, I don't know. I I just really well, unique unique corals brought in some Australian rock, and somebody else brought in some live rock from Indonesia. 
And when I saw what the prices were, I mean, you can buy live rock or you can buy a refrigerator. <laughs> I, me, well, I have more use for a refrigerator. It's personal. Plus well, the live rock was is, out of water for like six, seven days or something, right? Yeah, well, a lot of it used to be shipped in cargo holds and things like that. What's funny, though, is I, I, I was at my dentist, and I did my dentist's 1,200-gallon tank uh, in 1994. It was a 1,500-gallon tank, and we brought in 1,200 pounds of Fijian mm. rock. They shipped it to L.A., sea-dwelling, literally carried it from the plane to the plane to Pittsburgh. It came on the plane to Pittsburgh. We took his truck to the airport. We put the 1,200 pounds on the back. We immediately put it in the tank, and it was three days before Thanksgiving, and he was having his whole family over, and his wife's remembering his tank upstairs, which had used Florida rock, and it was like yeah. a dead body had been put <laughs> in the house. And she goes, we can't have a party if we're going to this. Oh, don't worry about it. Believe it or not, there was no ammonia spike. There was no smell. We found a dwarf oh, moray cool. eel. We found an octopus. We found more stuff on that live rock than I've ever seen before. I wish I had taken that live rock because that was the nicest, cleanest live rock that probably ever came into the country. Twelve hundred pounds, and none of the pounds, were, none of the rock were under thirty oh, wow. pounds. These were all big, gigantic pieces. He still has them in the tank, but it's not a, a reef tank anymore. It's just a, a tang and live rock tank. But it, it breaks my heart. But I'll never forget that rock. I never forget how backbreaking it was though, to put 1,200 pounds of rock in a tank at uh, midnight. Either. You know, about five years ago, uh, or maybe it was, yeah, about five years ago when I restarted my 187-gallon tank, you know, which I started with dry rock and I broke it down because just uh, battling dinos and what have you, I went down to Florida on vacation and I um, was actually on the lookout for some live rock down there when I was thinking about rebooting the uh, the tank. And I found a, a local fish store in Orlando. Um I, I'm, I'm spacing on the name right now, but um, at the time they were getting Haitian live rock in. So I, yeah, I, I timed my uh, my visit, and I and I, you know, they they got a huge shipment into the uh, the Haitian live rock, and uh, I cherry picked about 125 pounds for the uh, for the 187 gallon tank, and I was a very very happy camper. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, the good old days when live rock. I mean now. Even the, the mariculture of live rock is it's basically like bricks. It just doesn't have the porosity. It just doesn't have the bio life or the microfauna and sponges and everything else that you see on the old live so rock. So we got a comment from Steve Pond. Mike, please make more videos. You are the godfather of reef keeping. <laughs> <laughs> now, I like making the videos. The problem is we go with him not getting out of the house. We go eight hours and by like the sixth hour, I can barely speak. <laughs> it's like I'm whispering like an old grandfather. <laughs> So, no, we'll, we'll be shooting some more because, there's, as I said, there's lots going on in my tanks, as there always is. And that's, that's part of the problem. I'm always experimenting. I'm always trying something new. I mean, that's, that was what my training was. And I've always – I said I wasn't going to change much this year, but I, I probably changed the – 50% of what I did last year, but it's still way too much. Yeah, you know, that it is always a risk to try to, like, mess with a good thing. If things are humming along and, and you want to, like, kind of tinker, it's, um, it's a slippery – it can be a slippery slope. It, um, and, and you think you've got yeah. things under control by doing a controlled experiment, but um, it's, it's amazing how quickly things can kind of unravel. Yeah, this, this experience with overfeeding the tank and putting in maricultured uh, corals and letting the crazy stuff grow off the rocks is bad. 
So we got a question from St. Nova. Uh, Mike, do you think maturity is due to some genetic material that is released into the water that acros can pick up on? Question mark. Acros are being grown on strings in the sea, so not sure about just rock. I'm not quite sure. You can grow acros on just about anything. Uh, yeah, I, they've been growing them off of strings. They were, uh, I remember getting some Maricol or yeah, maricultured corals from Galveston, Texas, of all places, which were some crazy corals that I've never seen before or since. And they were grown off of strings off of oil uh, rigs. So you can grow them off of anything. But I, you may, what you may be asking is, does a tank, you see the uh, old tank syndrome over time in these tanks, and is it something that's released from the live rock or from the detritus? In my experience, the, the longest I've had a tank up was 12 years, and then my ex-wife killed it off. So it wasn't showing any signs of it, but it was bare bottom, and I was cleaning out the sump regularly and cleaning out the uh, detritus that was accumulating. And as, as the tank matured, I kept adding more and more flow within the tank to make sure there weren't any dead spots. Because what I've seen is in older mature tanks, a lot of times the people don't clean their pumps, don't add any new pumps, so the flow is diminished over time. As the corals grow, there's more drag on the flow, and as a result, they don't get the nutrients and everything else that they do, so they tend to suffer. And you also tend to get lazier as you get older. Just I, I'm a perfect example of that. And you go, oh, I, I, your arrogance takes over, and you go, I don't need to do that, I don't need to test that, and that's when you run into problems. So all of these things lead to, uh, for lack of a better term, an over-maturation of an think, older tank. Do you think that occurs more often with a tank that has a sand bed versus a bare-bottom tank? It depends on how clean they keep the sand bed. I mean, Sanjay's kept his sand bed, and his tank was perfect for the last 15 years, but in the last year, he's had a lot of issues with it, uh, one of which was he, he lost his giant Lenardi rass that was always stirring up the sand. Now the sand is basically a lot more stable and a lot more compacted, and he's had more issues with stuff. So that potentially could be it. I mean, there's there's so many things. I can give you the same exact stuff that I have. You do it your way. You do it, we both do it the same way, and we're still gonna have completely yeah. different tanks. So for me to say something as a you know overall this no, I, I've seen European tanks and German tanks in particular that were absolutely perfect with old sand beds. One, they didn't have a whole lot of fish in them. Two, they typically didn't have all the rocks smashed yeah. down on the, uh, they had it sort of up a bit so that the stand could have some oxygen to it. I, I think a lot of the problems that we tend to neglect are due to lowered oxygenation within the tank. I mean, I've been a big advocate of looking at the CO2 levels in the room and looking at the O2 levels in the tank. Those two probably as much as alkalinity and anything else and pH will give you a much better feel for how the tank is doing than looking at anything else. I mean, there, there are somewhat esoteric measures to take, but to me, uh, I found that it, it's very, I can tell when my tank's doing better when my CO2 levels in the room are down, the pH is up, and when my oxygen levels are up. Yeah, you know, um, that's so true. I've, I've, I've had, um, you know, greater success in terms of uh, my, my SPS when I've had the, uh, the higher pH range, like in the 8184 range, and I, I added in a, um, an air exchange yeah. unit to try to, um, you know, increase the... Uh, decrease the amount of CO2 in the room during the, uh, the winter months when the windows are closed. So that's, that's definitely helped. And, um, dosing caulkwasser in addition to, uh, using the calcium reactor and, and, and things like that. Um, what was I going to ask you one, um, 
one other question in terms of I'm just looking at the uh, the chat here. Oh, um, any tips on cyano control would be appreciated. This this actually reminds me. Let let's get back to that question. But um, this actually reminds me of what I wanted to say. And and one of the past live streams you were on, you mentioned that um, might might have been every other day, or maybe you were doing it every day. You took a a powerhead to blow the the detritus off of the uh, the rock and to um, get that detritus into the um, water column so it could be pulled out via mechanical uh, filtration. That's something that I've actually started doing myself every other day now. And I had, I had some cyano in, in my display, one of my display tanks, and it seems like doing the, uh, staying on top of the uh, detritus and, and removing as much as possible from the tank has seemed to help in terms of the uh, the cyanic issues that I've had. I've had patches here and there, but not uh, plague proportions. But I think that's another thing. Yeah, I've had, I've had the same thing. Yeah, I still do the uh, powerhead on the tank. I'm still looking for a powerhead that is battery yeah. operated that I can <laughs> stick in the tank because I hate pulling yeah, I those wires around because I also feel I'm going to electrocute <laughs> myself at some time when the salt water splashes on the extension cord. But I do that, and the other thing I did was I added significantly more mechanical filtration. To me, along with flow, mechanical filtration is one of the unsung heroes that tends to get neglected in our mm -hmm. tanks. We're all worried about having the ultimate uh, UV sterilizer and all the latest equipment to measure everything, but we don't do something simple like mechanical filtration. So now on all my overflows are polyester pads that I change every day oh. or every other day, and the amount of stuff that gets accumulated in there in a day, if I let that sit in a, uh, in a dish pan for a day, it smells like a dead body. So I know there's a ton of stuff. Also, by removing it, I, I measure ORP, and every time I change one out, my ORP goes up 20 to 30 points. So I know that I'm significantly moving a lot of things that are deteriorating in the tank. Uh, the other thing that I built, uh, based on what my friend uh, Andre Mueller's doing at uh, Reef Moonshiners, is a power filter, which is basically a power head with a mechanical filter stuck on the bottom, and it draws in all the detritus from all around. And then you just take it out, throw away the uh, uh, filter fiber, and replug it in. Yeah, I do that like once a week, and that has also dramatically improved the tank. Now, in terms of managing the cyano, I found the same thing. I would get little patches of it, and they were typically in dead spots. So, one, I tried to increase yep. the flow there. Two, I made note of where those dead spots were, and I tried to always hit them with a power head. And three, as soon as I started seeing any kind, I would take a turkey baster and I would fill it with peroxide and blast the cyano area with peroxide. And that has gotten rid of it faster than anything else I've done. What, uh, what kind of uh, um, concentration of uh, peroxide are you using for that? I'm using the cheap 4% peroxide that I get at the dollar store. I love the dollar store for stuff for this hobby because I everything plastic I get at the dollar store because you can buy pitchers, you can buy dish pans, everything I need to use. I get it the dollars. So yeah, Mike, we um, you know, so we did have that one question in terms of advice for fighting uh, cyano. You know, I, earlier in the show, you mentioned you did use ChemiClean. Are is is that something that you would only use in terms of chemicals if you had a um, a really bad outbreak of cyano, or is that something that uh, you found effective in terms of knocking that stuff back pretty quickly? It, it knocks it back pretty quickly, but I would only use it if I had a major outbreak. If I'm just getting a spot here and a spot there. Uh, if the tank's getting overwhelmed, then you're going to do something to overwhelm it, and that's when I would use it. That plus water change plus more aggressive, like I said, flow and getting the detritus out of the tank.
uh, adding more mechanical filtration and changing it regularly. All those things, factors play a big role in getting rid of uh, cyano. Yeah, you know, it's um, I've used ChemiClean a couple of times in, in you know, in, in the past, uh, I don't know, five uh, years or something like that. And, and it's always, um, it's certainly knocked back the cyano, but something else has resulted, you know, as uh, I've had dinos that have kicked in because of, uh, you know, after the ChemiClean or mm -hmm. something else happened. And yeah, I think there's just a lot of unknown variables when you're using something like that to, um, to, to, to solve that sort of problem. So yeah, I agree with you. I think it's something that I always, that's like a last resort type of thing for me. And the natural means is the best, most solid, safe way to do it. That's why I'm going to be curious to see if the uh, adding the halides also reduces the cyano. Because I don't remember having the cyano outbreaks like I used to. And I'm going to actually get some cyano and put it in a little container under the halides and see if basically it destroys it. I mean, it's going to be an interesting this is, opens up a whole nother realm. So, of so Mike, I, I never had, I've been keeping reef tanks for almost 30 years, and I don't ever remember having cyan up until about five, six, seven years ago. I mean, is has that been your experience in terms of, uh, you know, cyan yeah, dinos? I, I don't and, remember having it in more than the 2000s. I never had dinos. Uh, I, I don't remember half of the pathogens. One, we've gotten a lot better at growing things, so when you get better, you get more pests to come out. I mean, I never had problems with red bugs. Uh, I actually remember talking with Leroy Headley in the mid to late 90s, and we saw these little clear flatworms that were on our blue acroporas, and we said, these guys must be eating them, but we can't see them because they're the same color. We didn't know those were Aptasia-eating flatworms at the time, and we treated them by dipping the corals in Lugol's iodine. So, I mean, those have been around for a long time, but I don't even hear people talking about those. That's like the least of people's yeah. plagues now. There's a lot worse things It, it just going seems on. like things have gotten more complicated um, to, in terms of... I, I talk about people with, that with people all the time, that things, to me at least, used mm -hmm. to be a lot simpler. I didn't measure as many things. I didn't tinker with as many things. And my corals used to literally grow out of the water. And now I have RTN, I have dinos every day. I've had those twice, and I took, got rid of those, luckily. Uh, this bot with algae that I've never had in the past, a lot of things that I never worried about in the past, I'm now seeing. And I, I would think I would be better by now, but uh, I question whether I'm losing <laughs> my mind and just getting old and senile or, uh, you know, it, it's curious, but I'm not the only one. Like I said, I talked to probably – I probably talked to a couple hundred different hobbyists all around the world. And I, I'm amazed by how many of us have had problems in the past year, even though we were home, even though we were spending more time with our tanks, which may have been actually been the problem. But, you know, there, there's a lot of angst in the hobby because as we all know, uh, sorry, ladies, but every man knows happy wife, happy life, happy tank, <laughs> life's good. I mean, that's just it. When your wife's happy, you're happy, and when your tank's bad, you're sad. It's just how it is. <laughs> it's it's incredible, like how it can just be a mood changer, you know. And to just getting so bummed out oh, about yeah. stuff related to the tank, it's like, oh man, you never realized it could really have that kind of effect on you. And it has it on everybody that has one. I mean, in the summer when I was having major issues, I was sleeping like one or two hours a night. I just could not fall asleep. I had so much anxiety about it. And I talking with my friends, I know they're in the same boat. We're all going, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> We're all going, I wish I could sleep. You know, one of the questions I was going to ask you is, like, have you had any um, aha moments 
during your reef keeping career in terms of like, uh, you know, something happened and then you did something to kind of solve an issue and you're like, ah, all right, that's something that I've never really uh, had thought of before. And this is the, I'm going to kind of change the way I've been doing things moving forward. It, um, have you, have you had any of those kind of moments in your reef keeping career? The, the biggest one was the latest one with the relationship between room CO2 and tank pH and trying to keep the room CO2 low by turning on the fan in the bathroom and sucking the air out there and letting the air come in from the garage or opening the window or adding uh, air stones into the downdraft or into the uh, overflows so that there's fresh air blowing up against the water to drive off the CO2 and adding more flow across the top of the tank. I mean, finding everything I can that is relatively simple, but now my pH runs from 8.2 to 8.4 during the day and never drops below 8.0, and the corals are growing significantly faster yeah. than they were whenever the pH would drop down to 7, 7, 7, 8 at night and never get over 8.0 during the day. Um, Mike, going back to what we were just talking about in terms of like, oh, you know, a lot, lot of issues popping up uh, recently, but uh, a reef on the 10th floor, uh, Makes comment. We get more cyanodinos nowadays because we add too much new stuff from bottles. Do you think we're uh, dosing too much of our tanks these days? I, I don't remember dosing nitrates or phosphates way back when. I don't remember uh, you know dosing coral food uh, years ago. It was just kind of like straight up have strong lighting, good calcium alkalinity supplementation, good husbandry, and things uh, grew. I agree, but one of the things I, I, in looking back at the old tanks, a lot of them had a lot of brown corals. Mm. And as all of us that have been in this hobby a long time know, if you have two corals and they're stressed, the colorful one is going to die first. <laughs> Always the most expensive one. It's that's one of the unwritten laws of the hobby. So I'm wondering if we're getting more weaker corals or sicker corals or. Have we mutated the corals and changed them to make them more susceptible to the stress that we have? Uh, case in point, I, I looked at, uh, when I, going back in the old tanks, I was looking at the old Stuber Acropora. And the, the Stuber Acropora was the first really deep chocolate brown Acropora there was. And it was chocolate brown for the first 15 years in the hobby. Now it's green and turquoise and purple. I, I don't understand. Have we made it better? It's the same coral. But the lighting and everything else we've done has changed its characteristics. So has, have we done something that has weakened the coral and made it more susceptible to all this? So we have to do more testing. We have to do more adding of stuff. Or is us doing all this uh, like having a poodle that you train to do all these certain things, but the dog won't hunt? It's the same thing. <laughs> uh, so, Mike, you talked about elevating uh, pH and um Chris from ASA Aquaculture said, uh, you know, that we found our biggest positive change is stable pH by far. Do you think that's um, something that reef keepers are paying more attention to recently versus years ago? Higher pH? Uh, yeah, pH sort of fell out of favor. Same with ORP. They were like, oh, those are blasé. I'm more worried about what my monitor's showing on this and this and this rather than looking at the, the fundamentals. Uh, one of the things that being stuck indoors with COVID did was making me go back and look at some of the fundamentals because I had time to do that and work on them. Specifically, I mean, I worked on pH probably for three or four months is what it took me to get it from adding, you know, a, a CO2 scrubber, which downstairs in my tank was just prohibitively expensive to constantly be mm -hmm. replacing the media to finding other ways around trying to increase the, CO, the uh, pH in the tank. And the same with ORP. 
I mean, it's a measure of how clean the water is. Everyone knows, quote unquote, that Acroport prefer typically clean, clear water. Well, if your ORP is like 300, 320, your water's not that clean. Mine typically runs between uh, 430 mm. and 470, which is right on the borderline of probably being too clean. But what's interesting is I look at what things I do and how they change ORP, and it's usually not immediate. It usually takes anywhere from 6 to 12 hours. Like if I siphon the detritus out of the sump or siphon the detritus out of the dead spots in the tank, uh, you'll see the ORP maybe 380, 390. That's when I know I have to take it out. Next day, it's over 450. So I, I know removing something that's decaying is having an impact on the overall quality of the tank. Yeah, yeah. Sounds, uh, makes sense. All right, folks. Well, we've got over 100 of you uh, watching right now, and, and thank you very much. But we only have 49 likes, so I'm going to, again, remind everybody out there to hit that uh, like button so you can more people can find the uh, the live stream. This is a, a great opportunity to uh, ask Mike some some questions, so please uh, feel free to do so in the uh, the chat. Mike, so you mentioned you've been posting some um, some photos of some tanks that you have visited in the past on on facebook i actually i grabbed a couple of those photos i don't know if you if you don't mind me uh showing a couple of those tanks we can uh yeah oh, no, so fine. um one that struck me was this uh tank from uh mark silverman and um i think uh yeah. <laughs> you, the picture that i'm showing right now is a uh a validia right that actually grew yeah. around one of the return um pipes well, it's actually cooler than that in that he had two pieces and they grew up and around so that the water would shoot in between like a cave. But the tank was set up in those days. We tried to have flow, but we didn't have good power heads. So the, the person that set it up, set it up with two uh, Iwaki pumps on it, two Iwaki 55s that would blow from opposite sides. The problem was if they were on at the same time, they would flood over the top of the tank because the overflow box couldn't handle how much they were putting out. So to get around that, he put them on timers. But the timers were such so that for a half an hour during the day and a half an hour at night, both of them were off. So what happened was the water would drop down about half an inch to an inch below the surface. Well, that was fine as the coral was below the surface, but over time, the coral literally grew out of the water so that for a half an hour each day, and I was there to see this, and I measured the temperature, and the temperature was 103 wow. degrees on the corals. Wow. And the coral was the most vivid purple coral I have ever seen before or since, and it was a solid rock of Acropora. And however it put up with 103 degrees, because it had done so gradually, the tank was stable, but it, it, nobody sets up a, a plumbing system now where the tank is out of, air, out of water for uh, half an hour every day so the corals can get blasted. And I, I'm curious as to what a LED would do to those corals versus a halo. But it was it was a, a, a very very. It, it's amazing. Tank. I mean, it's it's chock full of corals. I mean, there is a mushroom coral underneath there. That you know, there's at least one big mushroom. There's zoanthids on the back. There's other corals growing on the back. Look like out of the tank. Uh, crazy stuff. Yeah, and I think it, one of the. Um, yeah, and it, I mean, it was, it, I, I don't remember if I put a picture of the uh, sump. All it was was a skimmer, a heater, and two pumps. There was nothing <laughs> magical in this tank. Uh, dosed Kalkwasser, and that was basically it. I mean, it was 
as, as simple a tank as I have ever seen and as chock full because none of those corals, he was, didn't put in big wild colonies. He put in small little colonies and just let them grow. Because in those days, most of the colonies came in the size of a golf ball or at best your fist. So everything that was in there, which was the size of cantaloupes and uh, basketballs, were grown out and in a relatively short time. And, and he was running halides, right? You were, you, uh, you were talking about, okay. Now yeah. another... He was running 10, 10K Iwasaki. Now so another... And he ran a couple of uh, uh, ultraviolet resource actinic on there as well for a little bit of blue light. But you know, when the halides were on, you really couldn't tell the blue light. Now a, uh, another tank that I'm showing that you posted on Facebook um, when you visited many years ago with Julian Sprung's tank. And he's got uh, halides on that tank. And, and actually, that fixture, I don't know how you pronounce that. Um, it's an Italian. I used to have that, uh, yeah. that exact fixture. And that was like a great fixture. And I'm so upset that I actually sold yeah. it many years ago because I wish I still had it. Um, but, um, yeah, so that, that, was a, uh, that was a tank, you know, once again, just um, full of corals under the, uh, under the halides. But then he... Yeah, that was five years ago, and he ended up losing most of that tank due to the hurricane that came through the year after. But the corals were as packed and as growing, and they were literally up to the surface under the halides as well. And as vivid a color as you could see in coral, particularly uh, the pink bird's nest, which is hard to get to be that color of pink. They all tend to turn green under our blue lights. But under those, uh, he has it growing now, though, under his LEDs. But he runs the LEDs like he did the halides, just basically daylight, not blue lights for the most part. Yeah, that's what I'm doing with with uh, with my LEDs. I'm I'm, well, I'm not running daylight. What I'm doing is I'm not running a very blue spectrum. I'm running a uh, a spectrum. I'm using the uh, the GHL uh, Mitras, and and um, mm -hmm. I'm running a spectrum that mimics a 400 watt 20k um, bulb. So it's um you know it's got that hint of uh, blue to it, but it's not uh, super blue. But uh, yeah, I, I I tend to like it, and the uh, well, that was, that was one of the interesting things that uh, Tulio uh, brought his photospectrometer, and I had an old radium mm. bulb, and we wanted to see if it was 20K Not. per se. Uh, what it is, is it just produces less white light, but the same amount of blue light as an Iwasaki 14K. So all you're doing is getting less white light, not more blue light. <laughs> We had I, all been working on the premise that it was a blue bulb. No, it's a, it's a less white bulb. All I know is I love that bulb. I've um, I'm, I've been running that for many many years, and I'm still using it. And uh, I will cry the day that they stop making those bulbs, and I think I'm going to have to start hoarding them or something. Yeah, you should start hoarding because I don't even I don't think they are making them anymore. But oh, they may. Really? People, some people are going back to halides. But I first saw those bulbs in like 1994 at Steve Tyree's house. I used to go fly out to California, uh, Lek at Aquarium Depot would bring in a Fiji shipment on Wednesday nights. I would fly out from Pittsburgh on Wednesday morning, hang out with uh, Steve or a couple other of my friends out there. We would go to, at 7 o'clock to Aquarium Depot. I would handpick whatever corals I mm. wanted. I had gym bags, if you remember what gym bags <laughs> yeah. look like. I would fill those up with corals. I would then Jeez. catch the red eye. But afterwards, we'd go, I'd go back to Steve's house and usually fall asleep or look at his tanks or take pictures or do stuff. I have pictures of his tanks. i got to find them. Then I would carry those bags onto the plane, put them in the overheads, and fly <laughs> home to Pittsburgh. Those, those, were the, were the those were the days, for sure. Those were the Gym days. Gym bags full crazy. of corals. 
<laughs> well, the funniest story about that, because I did it so frequently, I was working, I had a, a job where I was working five states. So I literally had a million miles of frequent flyer mm. miles. So I would fly out on my frequent flyer miles in the morning and fly out at night. So one time they bumped me up to first class. So I stick my two bags up in the first class thing, and one of the bags burst while it was up there. <laughs> and it filled the whole compartment Oof. with water. When we landed, there was a, a huge thunderstorm in Pittsburgh. <laughs> I pull out the wind, and it's leaking. I go, there's water in here. I knew it was my bag. I grabbed my bags and took off. All these maintenance guys come running there all looking at the overhead to try to figure out where the water came from. I know they didn't test it for salinity because I'd have gotten nailed. Oh, yeah. Wow. Jeez. You probably, uh, they probably had to take that plane out of service, Mike, because of you. Yeah, I know, but it was, <laughs> it was worth it, right? I hated them with a passion because they were always late. I used, to, I used to have coral shipped to me in Pittsburgh, and they always used to come in on U.S. Air. I slept at U.S. Air's terminal. I slept in the cargo department probably half a dozen times because their stuff was never on time and they never knew where it was. It could be anywhere. Oh, it's supposed to be at 6 o'clock. I'd be there at 9 o'clock. We don't know where it is. They would stay open for me because I, I knew everybody that worked there. Sometimes we were getting cargo at 1 o'clock in the morning. They were bringing it to me because they knew it was corals. Mike, uh, that is an obsession that you're, you're, uh, that, that is an obsession that you've, uh, you're describing right there. But, um, I, yeah. uh, <laughs> I, I can relate. I mean, I don't think I've done nearly as any crazy things like that, but, uh, I understand the, uh, the passion for sure. Yeah, no, just as crazy. I used to drive up to Toronto cause they would get crazy stuff in Toronto and drive back. That was an eight hour drive there and an eight hour drive back. And one time I drove up there and I got, the th really thick stocked Xenia, the Xenia that's like as thick as your arm. And I picked up two colonies of it. And I literally had to catch a flight as soon as I came home. So I stocked the bags with the Xenia, floated them on top of the tank. Well, they were stressed out. And my the wife, who is now my ex-wife, takes them out. And she's calling me and telling me, this is disgusting. It's like a wet, bed, wet dog in here. And it smells like death. Well, she put them in the tank, and they died, and they wiped out half the tank. But I made my trip to Toronto and back to get those because they were <laughs> impossible to get. Um, I'm just looking at some of the uh, the chat here. Some uh, Brad Hob Hobbies, Mike Pleta, can I be your friend? Uh, a little emoji with the uh, tears coming out of the eyes. I'm also out in Pittsburgh and could use a fellow reefer friend. <laughs> sure, I'm on Facebook. That's the easiest way to get in touch yeah. with me. Um, what else? We got a question from uh, Hammy's Reef. How does one lower silicates 400 parts per million in a reef tank without using GFO because my phosphate is zero? RODI water has zero silicates. Your RODI water has zero? Or are you using a silicate uh, cartridge on there? That would be the, the best way. Yeah. Because typically that's where they're most frequently introduced, and most common RODIs won't take all the silicates out. Could that uh, also be leaching out of uh, the rock, perhaps? Yeah, particularly some of the uh, if she used if they use dry, dry rock. rock. Yeah, yeah. Um, Blue Reef does Mike dose aminos? Uh, I quit whenever I started having the RTN STN issues because it tends to feed the bad bacteria. And and you've uh, you've noticed positive results um, in the past when you weren't dosing aminos and you started dosing aminos. Did you see a um, a change in terms of? Yeah, the I saw a big. I saw. I mean, literally the next morning, I had would have RTN on. 
four or five corals. So uh, certain brands, uh, actually uh, some of the more yellow aminos tend to cause more problems than the clear aminos. St. <laughs> Nova's got a, uh, a funny comment here. Uh, Ex-wife's uh, getting busted hard tonight. My wife is looking at me funny. Gonna hide the uh, bleach. <laughs> yep. No, she killed him with heat. Uh, it was the summer, and the, the uh, room had its own a two-horsepower chiller and its own air conditioning unit on my 1,200-gallon tank, and the temperature went up to 98 degrees outside, and the circuit breaker kicked in, and she didn't flip it back on. And there was some intent involved there? No, it's just stupidity. Oh, okay. It's, All right. It's the same. Okay, I got you. Um, Josh, the box. What does Mike think about mixing soft corals with SPS? Has he ever noticed chemical warfare from this? I haven't noticed warfare where the corals died, but I did notice a significant diminution in growth. Uh, as the soft corals tend to grow faster, they tend to produce more, and the, the stony corals can't keep up with a lot of them. Gotcha. Um, okay. I've got one more, um, tank that you posted on Facebook and this, this is a, a this is a pretty awesome tank. David Saxby's uh tank. I had him it's on as a, uh, probably the most awesome tank in the world. I, I had <laughs> him, uh, I had him on it as a guest and, uh, we talked about his, uh, his bobbit worm and how he, um, found the bobbit yeah. worm eating through the, uh, the silicone on one of the tank seams. But, um, you posted a picture of his tank before I guess he had a uh, um, a tank crash due to... Um... He's, he's actually had to replace that whole tank four or five times. Wow. He brings in three friends of mine from Germany, and they basically take it all down and put it back up. That tank uh, was lit by halides, and he had eight one-horsepower chillers, which were quote-unquote titanium chillers. And the person who sold him the titanium chillers lied. Uh, they were plastic-coated copper. And he could not figure out why everything was just gradually, slowly dying. And he finally took one of the chillers offline, got a chainsaw and cut it in half and found out that there was copper throughout. Had to take all of it out, had to take out all the rock, had to take out everything. Oh, no, no, that was after this one. This was, this was, this was when Julian and I were there. That's when those first pictures that were showing on there. We were there in 1999 or 2000. We were there to give a talk. Julian, myself... Uh, Helmut Tobilius, uh, Svein Fossa, and Alf Nielsen. Oh. And that was probably one of the most fun vacations I've ever had in my life because those guys were hilarious. We just had a great time. <laughs> but we're all looking at David's tank, and it's getting towards dusk, and we see these little red fish dart out and grab things to eat. And we hadn't seen them all day, and we go, David, what are those? He goes, Oh, I just got these little squirrel fish. They're no problem. We're going, you're out of your mind. They're going to get to be this big and they're going yeah. to eat everything tonight. <laughs> David knew we were wrong. He had no problem. Six months later, my friends from Germany go down. They took everything out of the tank because they could not catch these squirrel fish with hook and line, <laughs> with uh, guns, with whatever they could do. Those fish ate $5,000 worth of fish in David's tank. Ooh. This is 20 years ago. Ouch. So you had to take down the whole tank. We told him, don't put the damn squirrel fish in the tank. <laughs> Get them out while they're still small. He, he knew better. They were gorgeous fish, but they got to be, like I said, they got to be this big and ate everything they possibly wow. could. All right. Well, that was an expensive mistake. But that, but that tank, 
David bought the flat next to his flat so he could put the filtration system in. Yeah, that's nuts. That's crazy. Yeah, I'm crazy. He's crazier. In that room, <laughs> his, his wife collects 18th century tapestries. You see how valuable that tank is? The tapestries pale or make the tank <laughs> pale in comparison to what the value is. But no one that goes into that home ever looks at the tapestries. They only look at the tank. He has hand-laid Italian marble going from that tank into his filtration room. And they all the filtration, all the plumbing is underneath the floor. You don't even know it's there. He's a, he's a very um, smart guy. He's a very thorough guy. He really knows what he's doing. I had him on the, uh, the live stream um, a few months ago, and he actually had a um, a seventy page PowerPoint presentation that we uh, <laughs> we went through <laughs> of the diagrams and all the setup of his uh, system. It was like amazing. I mean, oh, it's amazing. He still has the wire ties in to hold everything together, so there's no bowing. Yeah. All the lights, the fil the the water flow in the tank is the most amazing thing. Yes, there's pipes behind rocks, so you can't see everything. There's not a dead spot in there. But the thing that people don't see, there's tubastria under every overhang and everywhere else because the tank is so well fed. These tubastria have covered every empty space underneath all the rocks, all the caves, everything. It's it's like the most amazing display you will ever see because it is like being on a reef. Yeah, no, it looks fantastic. And uh, I would love to check it out in person one of these days. A um, couple more questions for you here, Mike. Um, Eric uh, L., does Mike still use Miracle Mud? Yes, I still have it on all my tanks. I've never had an issue with it. Uh, I've never had lateral line in my tanks. All my fish keep their colors and are happy, so I continue to use it. Um, Drew? And no, I don't know what's in it. After 25 years, I still don't know. I don't care. <laughs> it works. It works. Um, I don't know what's in the hot dogs I eat either. Yeah, I like right, they taste pretty darn good. That's it, uh, especially at a hockey game or a movie. Yeah. So. <laughs> uh, Drew uh, Drew Young is asking, do you have the famous Mike Paletta blue in your current tank? No, I lost it as part of this. Uh, I have a friend that has it. I'm trying to find it again. Uh, actually, one of the things I'm doing with going with the halides, I'm trying to go back and get some of the old corals, particularly some of the old blues. Uh, you can't find an Acropora hoaxamai or an albrahensis or a lovelai or a Paletta blue. Uh, I'm trying to get the old blues because under blue lights, blues just wash away. Yep. But under halides, blues are king. So I'm trying to find a lot of the old blue corals. And Keith's actually going to send me some. So I'm happy. Oregon Blue Tort. Can't get any bluer than that. Uh, there's a couple that are close. Are there? Yeah. Yeah. Part yeah. of the ocean is close. I've never had and that. The blue, old, old blue hoaxamai is also pretty close. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and Jake has one called, uh, an immortal tort that is pretty blue that has green tips. Yeah. I saw that on, on a, uh, yeah. on a video. Um, St. Nova is asking, please ask Mike why I can't keep tenuous, but every other acro does well. That's that. I, I always have amazing luck with the tenuous knock on wood. Uh, the skin always gets dry looking and then they wither away. Any ideas? The tenuous that we're getting come from two places. It all depends on where you're getting them from. One guy that's doing the aquaculture has them in like six feet of water. One guy has them in like 30 feet of water. So it depends on where you're getting them from. If you're getting them from the low, the 30 feet or deeper place and putting them in high light, you're basically burning them up. 
and particularly with LEDs, they don't seem to like that. They get real colorful, but if you can get the, the, the shallow water ones, I, I know there's no way to know. You gotta talk to the uh, whoever's bringing them in to find out from the uh, collector where they're getting them from. That will help a lot. Uh, also, I have found that tenuous tend to like nutrients in the water. They do not come mm -hmm. from you know, zero nitrate, zero phosphate water. So if you're not, don't have any nutrients in the water, that will also cause them to, to stress out and die. Uh, let's see. They're also very prone to RTN, which I have found, because those were all the first things that went the most expensive mm -hmm. corals in the tank. So uh, you have to keep things stable. That's the, that's the third thing about them. Uh, figure out where they're from, figure out what nutrient levels, that your nutrient levels are adequate, and make sure that your, temp your parameters are very, very stable because they don't tolerate instability at all. They're like the old Geminiferas were in the 90s, yep. which were equally as colorful, but just as difficult to keep for some of us. A um, couple more blue corals to uh, think about. Um, Josh, the box mentions the, uh, the Tyree Blue Matrix, which I'm going to send you a, a frag of, which is uh, certainly yep. very blue, and the uh, Palmer's uh, Blue Millie. I um, I love that uh, that Millie. I, I, I had a nice little colony. I lost it in my 187-gallon tank, but I, now I've got another uh, frag growing out of my Peninsula tank. Beautiful, uh, beautiful uh, coral. Yeah, there's also the blue sapphire really, which may be a variant of the of the Palmer's blue. Actually, one of the sets of uh, tanks that I just found is a, a tank from Kurt Luce, who had the ultimate Palmer's blue that was sitting literally half an inch under the surface of the water, six inches from a 400-watt halide, and it was the bluest of the blue Palmer's. So I have to find those slides. Uh, that was that was one of the the other good things, though is over the summer when I was cleaning, I found a box of 50 DVDs of people's tanks. But more importantly, uh, my box of probably 300 sets of slides of people's tanks. Wow. And it's, I, haven't, I haven't converted those because they just don't have the colors. And people go, oh, these aren't as nice. As no, you guys don't understand how amazing these tanks were for the mid to late 90s where there was no blue light for the most part. There was no filters. There was no Photoshop. There was no macro photography. It was all coral. What you see is what like you get. You look, yeah. If you look at Alf Nilsson's tanks <clears> from the 90s, they, a lot of them just had brown corals, but they were still absolutely stunning. To have a brown Formosa growing next to a blue Tridacna clam was as stunning as anything you'd see. So um, one last picture that I um, snagged from your Facebook page is your old tank. And... Um, I think I read it. Uh, that was the 500. That was my favorite. I, I, yeah, I was, I was about to say, I think I, I, I remember you saying that was your favorite tank ever. Yeah, it's, uh, everything was grown in there from literally small colonies. They grew like weeds. Uh, the, the stand was hand built by me and a woodworker that lived up the street from me. It took us six months just to build the stand. Ooh. So it was, it was a pure labor of love. The corals were literally growing out of the water. Uh, everything was thriving and I was of the, of the young mindset and stupid mindset. Well, if more is good, even more is better. <laughs> so I had to get more corals and that was the downfall going to the 1200, which I literally built myself because you couldn't get anyone to build you a 1200 gallon tank. Then I got the glass. I'm trying to think who I got the glass from somebody local in Pittsburgh. And I got my son's football team to help me move the glass in. And I enlisted a glazier to help me put it together. And one Saturday afternoon, we put that tank together, and the only accident that happened is a friend of mine who was a 
a master carpenter drilled through my thumbnail. <laughs> and that's the closest I've come to passing out from pain in the hobby the entire time I've been in the hobby. Ouch. But, and I mean, the 1200 tank did good. I'm going to probably put, post the picture of that before the end of the year. But that tank was spectacular. Uh, there was tons of flow. There was tons of fish. It was, I could work in that tank. The 1200 was totally unmanageable. The cost of electricity was about $900 a month to manage that 900. Uh, I had 14 metal halides on the on the 1200. Uh, wow, that must just, have been some electricity bill. Yeah, $900 a month. Ooh. This is 20 years ago. And then was that, uh, what about the summertime? I'm assuming the AC bill was a little uh, high during the summer months. It would kick it in another 200, so it would yeah. be 1100 in the summer. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that makes a lot of sense. You know, so on, on the... Yeah, it, it was insane. <laughs> <clears throat> um and you were running uh, on so on the 500. I see four um, metal halide bulbs. Is that what you're running on? And just the uh, and, and you also had some. Uh, um, I see some v VHLs. Yeah, I, ran, I ran I ran four VHO uh, ultraviolet resources VHO actinics, and those were 1400k. Uh, they weren't radiums. They were. I, they, I don't know if, what they were actually. I want to say Iwasaki's, but I'm not sure. I think the Iwasaki's were 6500k. Somebody had a 1400K bulb that I was running then. And those were the Luminarch reflectors. And I think one of those pictures I show, the metal halides were off in the middle of the tank and only on the, on the sides. And sunlight came through for a couple hours every day. And you couldn't even tell the 400-watt metal halides were on. I mean, it was astounding how bright sunlight is compared to the halides. But... If I'd hold that Luminarch up with it on, I could blind you. It was like, <laughs> it was, I mean, it was a blinding amount of light, but the sunlight was even more blinding. So what, what, um, what was the big difference between that tank and the current tank today in terms of, you know, what you do? I mean, was it more, a lot more basic, that 500 that you had it back was, then? It was simple and basic as you could have. And it just had one big skimmer that I built myself, uh, the flow was, uh, what was it? Uh, I'm trying to think. Most of the flow was from a two-horsepower water pump that the bearings went on because it wasn't designed for salt water. <laughs> but it, it blew the flow along the top and pipes and then shot it out with uh, uh, eductors. And then there were a couple big powerheads in there. And there was a huge overflow going into roughly a 120-gallon sump. And that was basically it. So... Let's let's get back to talking about dosing bacteria. Why are we dosing bacteria today versus years ago if that wasn't even a thought in our minds? I think we understand more, but I also think we do more that kills off bacteria than we did then. So, and we, we try to keep things in balance. I mean, I love my LED lights, but I'm curious to see if adding these halides changes the bacterial composition of the water, that's mm. one of the things I'm going to do is do a before and after to see if that changes anything. Yeah. And also to see if I have less of a incidence of STN or dinos or cyano or any other things, if the natural UV light that's coming out of these LED, out of these halides kills off a lot of the pathogenic things. Yeah. So it's going to, I mean, I'm always, like I said, I'm always an experimenter. That's what keeps me interested, and that's how I was trained. So, in, in terms of the dosing of the bacteria, do you do that on a daily basis? Or do you do it like once a week? 
Um, I'm adding four different kinds, and I add it every other day. I add one and one two days later, one two days later, one two days and later. And you're turning off the... And I add a mix because I'm not sure what's in any of them. Because none of them tell you, we have this strain and this strain, and right. no one tells you that. Right. Um, and you're turning off the skimmer and the UV uh, for several hours after each time you're dosing, right? Right now, my skimmer goes off from 6 until midnight every day because I found that that's the most efficient way I get more skimmate out of that doing it that way than running it 24-7. And I do it at midnight because my lights go off at 11.30. So there's that half an hour when the whatever plankton and bacteria can hit the water before it gets skimmed out of the water. So hopefully the corals will eat it or whatever. And then whatever's out there, the skimmer kicks in and takes it out. Yeah, you know, Dr. Tim talked about that in terms of, uh, you know, he was suggesting turning off the skimmer for at least a couple hours every night. Yeah. I, I don't like to do it at night because the oxygen levels tend to drop, and I saw my pH would drop right. down to 7.8. So by doing it as the lights are gradually diminishing in intensity, but before they goes completely black, uh, I, I run it. I turn them off for that six hours. I mean, you can do it for four hours. I've done it for four, and I've done it for six. I didn't see a significant difference in doing it either way. I mean, you may do it for five. I mean, but I've I've not seen a difference either way. But I started doing it for six. Didn't see any you know, significant harm. So I just do it for six because that's my habit now. Right. Yeah. You know, I've, I've never done that, but, um, it, it's an interesting, uh, concept in terms of, um, you know, I, I think, you know, you, you made the point that, um, it's, it's, uh, we have more stuff these days that can kind of kill bacteria. You know, I think the skimmers these days are a lot uh, more powerful than the skimmers we used to use, uh, way back when, and, um, the filtration systems and, 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 um, you know, in terms of what we're able to pull out of the water, I uh, I totally agree. I think that if you're kind of um, sitting on your laurels in terms of your old um, uh, reef keeping practices and you know things that you had been abiding by that had been working, um, you have to adapt. Or I guess the saying is adapt or die. And 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 perhaps that's why you know some you know so many veteran reef keepers are running into issues that we've never run into before. Because the uh, the modern reef keeping game has definitely changed. Yeah, it's, it's changed significantly. And uh, what's interesting in talking with Sanjay and a couple of other old timers, we're not sure if it's better or not, to be honest with you. Because, <laughs> I mean, uh, I used to spend a lot more time sitting and enjoying my tank rather than putzing around, doing a, blasting the stuff off the rock and changing and doing other things that I've now found necessary. Granted, I keep a, a much more diverse group i keep more fish than i have always kept a lot of fish now i keep probably too many fish but there, there's a lot of things that are have made this more difficult but the question is can we go back to making it simpler and having you know something better that's a uh, that's a really good really good question yeah i mean I, I i definitely find that um i am putting a lot more time into my tanks than i ever have before in the past you know you've got um more bells and whistles you've got more um you know I've, I've got an alkalinity monitor i've got dosing heads that that come along with those al alkalinity monitors and you got to uh keep up on the maintenance on the peristaltic pump heads there's just so many yep. things that could potentially go wrong that um you know the more moving parts that you have it cr increases the odds of something potentially uh being an issue versus years and years ago when you had a very very simple system you didn't have a lot of bells and whistles on those systems the uh, the odds are that there would be less chance of things going wrong. Of course, things did go wrong. 
Um, you know, I, I had a couple of major issues uh, in my, um, you know, many, many uh, years ago. So it's, it's a learning experience. I mean, it's, that's also one of the great things about this hobby is that you, I, I tend to learn, you know, not, uh, I don't learn something new every day, but I do learn a lot of new things. Um, you know, as, as yeah, that's why I consider my, myself blessed that I talk to people like you and all the people I talk to on Facebook and I'm always still learning something or getting something to try. I mean, but there's always, I mean, in talking with a lot of our friends, our, our general rule is there's always something, always yeah, something will come. Like I, I was supposed to leave yesterday morning at eight o'clock for an appointment. I got on stairs and there's a, a little quiet beep, 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 beep. That's never a good sign. It's my water level is high in the sump, and I'm going. This isn't going to be good. My uh, three-year-old pump had died. Yeah. And when I went to change it with the newer model, they changed all the fittings on it. So I had to make three trips to Lowe's to get the fittings to match up right. Cut pipe, which I stupidly didn't do the unions, and they changed the unions on me at Lowe's from what they used to mm. do. So it was a much more of a, a pain than I wanted to. So. While I was supposed to leave at 8, I ended up leaving at 10.30. So it, it worked fine, but I also didn't realize that the pump is probably 10 to 15% stronger than the old pump. So I had to back off the amount of flow because the flow in my uh, uh, nano tank, my 40-gallon tank, was literally right at the surface. It was just about to overflow, which then would have short-circuited about six other things. So like I said, there's always something if you're not paying attention. And everything that's an upgrade, while it may be an upgrade, may cause more problems. Yeah, if you don't pay attention. Yeah, well, you know, it it, it, it keeps you on your toes. That's for sure. Yeah. Um. Well, you know what, Mike? I think um, maybe this is a good time to uh, to wrap. I had some uh, some other questions, but maybe we'll uh, we'll talk about some of this uh, stuff the next time uh, we we get you on. One person made a comment. I actually have Sanjay coming on in in a uh, in a few weeks, but we should probably get you guys on together. That would be a really interesting uh, conversation. Oh, that'd be good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so fun. That would be. A... Yeah, that'd be fun. Why don't we plan that after the new year? Yeah, let's let's definitely do that. Um, well. Mike, any uh, any final thoughts before we wrap it up tonight? No, I mean basically keep it simple. <laughs> Always learn from your mistakes, which I've learned not to put in maricultured uh, colonies back into my tank again, and <laughs> don't chase the numbers. So I mean those are three simple things from tonight. But remember, there's always something. But we all share this, so that's one of the great things of having been doing this for 37 years. I have a lot of friends now I've had for over 30 years, and that's what I think is the best part of this hobby. Yeah, no, for sure. The, um, the, uh, the friendships and the camaraderie, it, it's, it's, it's big, you know, to, um, to be able to share experiences. It's invaluable. And I think with um, social media, sometimes it's kind of easy to get away from that. And certainly with COVID, it's made it a little bit more difficult to, uh, to, to, to hang out and talk reef. But um, there is light at the end of that tunnel, hopefully. Yep. Yeah. Sanjay and I have only made one road trip in the last year and a half, and that's bad. Yeah. And that, that, uh, you, you guys are going to have to make up for that. that that's, that's for sure. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. All right, Mike. Well, listen, thank you again so much for, for being on the live stream. I also want to thank the, uh, the sponsors, Bulk Reef Supply and Ecotech Marine, for uh, supporting the show. And I also want to thank all you folks out there for watching and tuning in. I really appreciate you, uh, um, viewing and, um, being, um, uh, interactive in terms of asking the, uh, the questions. My next live stream, this is going to be an interesting one, Mike. I got, uh, my next live stream is Thursday, December 2nd at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And Matt Peterson from Coral Magazine is going to be on. My, my, my 187-gallon tank is actually featured in the, uh, the edition 
of Coral Magazine. Yeah, I for, forgot to congratulate you for that. It's yeah. a really nice write up. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate that. So we're going to kind of flip it around a little bit. Matt's going to be hosting the uh, the uh, the live stream, and he's going to be asking me questions and soliciting questions from the uh, from the viewers and from the readers about my tank. So we'll uh, we'll dig in a little bit on that one. Looking forward to that. But until then, um, be safe out there, and we will see you next time. Thanks, Keith. Talk to you soon. All right, Mike.